You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Australian National University hack and data loss looked to many observers like the work of Chinese intelligence services. The Gold Brute botnet is scanning vulnerable RDP servers. Muddy Water is back, undeterred by leaks and learning from the best. The Rig Exploit Kit is delivering Buran ransomware. Achilles says he's got the goods. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission IG looks at cyber inspections. And Big Tech prepares for big antitrust. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 7, 2019. As investigators continue to look into the cyber incident at the Australian National University, signs point to Chinese intelligence services as the operators behind the recent hack. It's consistent with other Chinese operations, which have aimed either at the cultivation of sources or the acquisition of intellectual property. In this case, the ANU hackers appear to have been engaged in recruitment. The attackers exfiltrated some two decades' worth of personal data that the Sydney Morning Herald says includes bank account numbers, tax information, and academic records of both students and staff. Investigators believe one of the campaign's principal objectives was to groom Australian students headed into civil service careers for recruitment as agents. ANU graduates are heavily represented in public service. The evidence pointing to China is circumstantial. First, only a small number of countries have the technical wherewithal to execute an attack of this kind. Second, an even smaller subset of those would be interested in doing so. And third, the attack seems to fit the pattern displayed in other Chinese cyber espionage campaigns. Why would an intelligence service be interested in financial and academic records? For any number of reasons. The more one knows about prospective agents, the easier it is to get your hooks into them. You might wish to develop the sort of rapport that might be useful in recruitment. You studied Levi's poetry? What a coincidence! Me too! I always found quiet night thought particularly moving. Or maybe you wouldn't believe the trouble I had with the credit department at regional... What? You too? Let's talk. Or you could accustom them to doing small innocent favors that lead to less innocent favors that lead to quite guilty favors. I've completely lost touch with Chloe. You remember her from ANU? You wouldn't happen to have a copy of a staff directory you could give me. I'd so love to get back in touch. And who wouldn't want to help out Chloe? And the next staff directory might be from an Australian signals directorate contractor. 
and then maybe an internal memo would be much appreciated because that nice person is interested in investments. Eventually, you get the point where you feel you have to refuse, but by then you may have given away things that the nice person points out, well, people just wouldn't understand. Better for you if you keep playing ball. And rougher still, it's also possible to turn up material that might be useful in compromising a target. I notice you wrote an honors essay on Levi's waking from drunkenness on a spring day. Did your drinking problems at Canberra lead you to that particular poem? Or perhaps, worst of all, something like this. It would be a shame if your second cousin in Shenzhen lost his job. Actually, losing his job might be the least bad thing that could happen. Chinese operators have been behind this kind of hack before, and it fits well into traditional espionage craft. The risks of remote desktop protocol vulnerabilities are coming into sharper focus. Morphous Labs warns that a botnet, Gold Brute, is scanning and brute-forcing about a million and a half RDP servers. There are several known RDP vulnerabilities out there, and there are patches available, including patches for BlueKeep, which Microsoft and NSA and their sisters and cousins and their aunts are really urging everyone to patch. Iran's hacking group Muddy Water, also known as Seedworm, might have seen more of its tools leaked online, but that hasn't made it pull in its horns. Clearski warns that the threat group is actively impersonating government accounts and using at least two new techniques. Microsoft documents carrying malicious macros, an exploitation of CVE 2017-0199, that is Microsoft Office WordPad remote execution vulnerability with Windows API. These, of course, aren't new attack tactics, but they're new for muddy water and represent Iranian intelligence and security services' long-standing determination to learn lessons and improve their game. It doesn't have to be novel, and it doesn't have to be innovative. It just has to be well-executed, and it just has to work. These work, especially against unprepared victims. The RIG exploit kit is now being used to deliver Buran ransomware, Buran looks like gangland for-profit work, although, of course, there's often a degree of penetration and control of the Russian mob by organs of the Russian state. The best defense against this Russian strain of ransomware are updated security software, since Buran arrives via exploit kits, sound offline backup, and properly suspicious users. That, of course, is good advice at any time. Our linguistic desk helpfully points out that Buran means blizzard. Researchers at security firm Advanced Intelligence are calling out another criminal active in dark web markets. He goes by the name Achilles, speaks English, and is suspected of being Iranian. He's selling, he claims, credentials that would give the buyer access to security companies, charities, and at least one international organization, UNICEF. There's no confirmation yet that Achilles can deliver the goods he's offering, but he enjoys a good reputation in this very bad neighborhood— his criminal clients consistently give him strong reviews, so maybe there's something there. In any case, Achilles bears watching. Cryptocurrency firms are under attack, as usual. GateHub users lost some $9.7 million, and blockchain startup Komodo, not to be confused with security firm Komodo, hastily patched a vulnerability in its wallet. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is short on cyber workers. A report by the Commission's Inspector General 
found that the NRC's cybersecurity inspections, quote, generally provide reasonable assurance that nuclear power plant licensees adequately protect digital computers, communication systems, and networks associated with safety, important to safety, security, and emergency preparedness, end quote. But the NRC, as much as it trains current staff to conduct cyber inspections, still finds itself facing a familiar problem. Good cyber talent is in high demand and not that easy to hire, especially into the government. The IG also found that the current cyber inspection program is risk-informed but not fully performance-based. The report urges the Commission to work on appropriate performance measures. And finally, as the antitrust sharks circle Big Tech, Big Tech is putting K Street shark repellent into the Beltway waters, hiring lobbyists to fend off the regulatory predators. And Facebook is reported to have begun bringing in more defense talent to its legal team. The administration seems to be serious about the feedings, which for now are divided between justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Congress is also taking an interest. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Robert, welcome back. Um, you know, I thought we could run through some of the ICS environments that uh, you all deal with. And why don't we start with um, natural gas? Give us an idea here in the United States. What is the the lay of the land with our natural gas system? How is it controlled? And what are the threats? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to natural gas, it's at a, an interesting changing point for the industry. Um, for years, 
although it was still critical and important, there wasn't as much national attention on it because it wasn't as critical to the bulk electric system. Um, as we have moved away from coal and moved more towards renewable sources, we still need a quick way to be able to generate power, which is natural gas. And so natural gas is starting to feed the electric grid much more so. Uh, even a lot of uh, larger energy companies buying up natural gas companies, which means that that national focus has definitely increased. There are threats that have targeted natural gas already, and we've heard about these over the years. We've never seen destruction or disruption as a result of an intentional attack. Um, but of course, it's still something that weighs very heavily on the folks' minds, especially when we start seeing the criticality of the industry increase. What, what they're sort of up against today is a variety of, of risk that they're trying to mitigate. One of the factors for them is they do have sort of that traditional SCADA approach, meaning uh, very long distances, right? A lot of pipelines, mm -hmm. um, very large landscape that they have to cover, as well as very boutique kind of systems. You know, gas compressor station along the side of a pipeline is not really normal um, knowledge for a lot of those, even in the industrial control security community. And um, so for them, they're trying to reduce that risk, not only to physical threats and the things they have to deal with, like crazies along the pipelines, but also in the fact that their threats can get out to those locations. And it's not some easily tapped infrastructure. It's not like they could drive to every single gas compressor station and every single aspect of the pipeline and storage wells and all that and throw a managed switch on there and start tapping that traffic. And it's not, not really achievable in that way. So they're much more around ingress and egress filtering and understanding uh, if they can identify threats from the control center down or back up again from those sites. And at the same time, they're just dealing with the nature of the politics. So we've got some good organizations like the Downstream Natural Gas, ISAC, who's trying to do a lot of advocacy and outreach in that sector. Um, but I, I expect this will be a very turbulent next couple of years for them as they try to figure out how to articulate what the real risk is while minimizing it without letting, as you noted, the hysteria get taken away as congressional members and others start asking questions on, oh, no, what is the threat to this new industry? Well, it's not really new, but this industry that's new in its criticality to the electric grid. So fantastic opportunity for them, uh, definite challenges. Uh, but as always, we've got some fantastic people taking on that challenge. And what would be the impact of an interruption of uh, natural gas service? It could be significant. It depends on a lot of factors, but one of the factors to consider is other generation sources of, of power in that region, as well as time of the year. So as an example of, of a particularly bad scenario, if we're talking about the dark uh, sort of months of the year, we're not getting as much in terms of like solar and we move towards solar more in the grid. And we also combine that with it being winter in places like the Northeast or Northwest, you know, a, a significant outage could actually have loss of life impact uh, when it comes to people in that region. Now, we're not talking about everybody in the region dying, but but nobody should take any loss of life uh, lightly. So we're, we're talking a, a number that um, is uncomfortable, mostly just because we're talking about people's lives there. Um, so I, I think there's a realistic scenario where an attacker can, can make planned and coordinated strikes against uh, pipelines that have real repercussions. But it still is much more difficult and nuanced than than people make it out to be. But the complexity of a natural gas pipeline is not the same as the complexity of the overall grid, which means to take down a giant portion of the grid for any significant portion of time is a very complex problem. It's not as complex in gas pipelines, but it is still not trivial by any stretch of the imagination. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Frank Downs. He's Director of Cybersecurity Practices at ISACA, an international professional association for IT auditors and cybersecurity professionals. Our conversation today focuses on his experience as an adjunct professor in cybersecurity and the challenges he sees the community facing when it comes to educating the next generation of cybersecurity pros. There's kind of a two-pronged problem here with uh, getting everybody, actually there's more like a three-pronged problem here when we're talking about getting everybody up to snuff for cybersecurity. First and foremost, we have this continually growing gap of a great quote that was told to me by one of our members was, every time someone buys a new iPad or iPhone or computer or laptop, the internet gets a little bit bigger, right? Mm. And we, uh, with the pace of new devices coming online, online every day, we're not making cybersecurity professionals or, cy- or training cybersecurity individuals fast enough. Um, so the gap keeps growing. If you take a look at our state of cyber report every year we put out, uh, the gap is still there and it's still concerning. Uh, the second thing is, uh, when it comes to training these professionals, is that you're using more traditional, primarily more traditional methodologies, such as passive learning for the individuals, for the students. That means, think of when you were in college, right? You would sit in these big halls and you would have people sit and they would all learn math from one person who would put it up on the, on the chalkboard and then it was your job to take it all in and then regurgitate it when it came exam time. That doesn't really work for cybersecurity. That doesn't really work for cybersecurity at all. You can't just, you know, sit down, have a passive po- death by PowerPoint experience, go in, sit down, take a multiple choice exam, and then all of a sudden be good at cyber, right? It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so we have to change more thoroughly the method of learning in across the board, not just um, in academia. And thirdly, there needs to be greater awareness, in my opinion. Uh, there was a study that was put out last year where 9 out of 10 students, 9 out of 10 millennials graduating, uh, said that they didn't even consider cybersecurity as a career path. Not like they thought about it and then said no, as in it just never even crossed their mind as an option, which means there's lack of awareness. And they t- took a look at that 1 out of 10, and one of the things that they really had in common was that they had somebody who worked in the field directly or had told them about it in school. So that lack of awareness that's even an option is also concerning. So it's a three-pronged approach, three-pronged problem, if you will, that we are working with and trying to uh, remedy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting insight. And I, I wonder, I mean, what you describe there of, uh, you know, that that's literally old school technique of, of a professor at the front of a, a big lecture hall, which I certainly experienced, uh, you know, way back in the day. Um, do we need to be shifting something more along the lines of a trade school? Uh, that's a good point, because that's exactly how I learned, too, back in the day. And I imagine neither you nor I want to talk about how back in the day that was, right? <laughs> that's um, right. 
I, I think you might be on to something there, and uh, but I don't want to overgeneralize, right? Because right now there seems to be this strong push of college is bad, trade school is good, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's, everything seems to be flipped on its ear, and that's not necessarily the case, right? So, uh, trade school is good and college is good, but uh, I think we needed to look at something on a more basic base level, right? A more basic level of how do we train these individuals, whether it is in some type of trade school or whether it is in college, right? Because what we've seen is individuals who do best in the field have some type of experience. I'll, I'll give you a great example. I've had uh, several students over the last several years who have come to me and have said, I want to get a job in this field, but I don't even know how to do this, and I'm really concerned about it, right? Now, uh, these are my graduate students in, that, I would, that I teach at night, and I teach them cybersecurity. And they were really concerned, right? Because most of these students come in, and their big thing is, we would like to get a job. Meanwhile, I talk to every, all these different professionals in the field, many of these executives, and they go, we need more people for these jobs. Uh, there's clearly a miscommunication there, right? And I told the student, I said, you really shouldn't be concerned. You've done so much practical, hands-on stuff here that when you go to this interview, compared to X, Y, or Z individual or applicant, you're going to blow them out of the water. That, and you actually know what the NIST policies are. I can't make you comfortable, but I can encourage you that things will go well. And I'll tell you what, she was one of my best students. She came back and said, you're 100% correct. They said the majority of the people who are applying to this have no actual hands-on experience, haven't actually worked with malware, haven't actually worked with pack analysis and so forth. So when they knew that I could do these things, and I even showed them, uh, that combined with this understanding of the NIST policies, well, they gave me a job. Um, so I, I think, and, and that was in a college environment, right? That was in a grad school environment. Now... Can this be replicated in a trade-like experience? Yes, and as a matter of fact, it is on a regular basis. There are um, several different things that ISACA is working with partners on having more of a trade school environment and wherein individuals can come, can sit down, and don't have to go, don't necessarily experience this more formal education path and are able to reskill into the field of cybersecurity. So I think it's uh, an issue that is both impactful for trade schools and for traditional academia as well. So the the institutions that are doing it right, those colleges and universities, um, I, I, even down to the community college level, the ones who are, who, who in your um, estimation are um, setting up the proper mix of things here, um, wh- what do they have in common? Wh- what are they doing that, that sets them apart? Uh, there's two things that I've seen in a lot of successful academic institutions and schools and programs. One is they're ensuring that the students are getting real experience, whether that takes the form of a range, right? Or whether that takes the form of a lab that they do in class, they're actually working with real malware. They're working with real denial of service attacks. They're stopping these things. They're responding to incidents and, and people are living them, right? Because there's no substitute for experience. There, there's no substitute for be, say, sitting down and saying, oh, yes, I've dealt with Spectre, right? I, I've, I've dealt with Meltdown. We can, we can work with these things. Um, the other thing that they're doing is they have partnerships and or programs that help these individuals get lined up with a job um, and, and can point them or at least prepare them to be competitive in the job market. I think that some institutions who aren't doing as well have this consistent mentality of, well, you got your degree, didn't you? Go, go ahead and get that job. That's, that's not me. When I, you're starting to see some schools actually take a step back. And what's really, really interesting is you're seeing some schools do this with certain like liberal arts majors, for example, right? 
um, you it's no longer and speaking as a liberal arts major um, you, getting an English degree doesn't necessarily equate to getting a job mm-hmm. and you're seeing a lot of these more successful schools say okay well done you got the English degree good good job um, you may know, notice that's a little hard to get a job we have this program that is a either cybersecurity or IT or technical or engineering program that we can put you through and give you these additional skills that can make you more attractive which I'll be perfectly honest with you speaking from experience it wasn't always my English degree that got me my job. In fact, it pretty much never was my mm. English degree that got me the job. Now, I could write, and that did help at the job, and I could communicate. And as you probably know, in the field of IT or cyber or any other field, someone who can do the job and communicate it effectively, that I mean, that's really valuable. So in the long term, they're setting these students up. But not all of these programs and these institutions are doing that, which makes it a lot more difficult for these students to then succeed. People need to know that this is an option. So... I think we're finally getting a good beachhead established in uh, trade schools and academia and reskilling programs for adults. However, I think there needs to be, I think we won't really have a good long-term solution until uh, as a field we've successfully infiltrated, say, that high school and middle school level of learning and understanding. We're going to need to actually come together and build a more consistent and capable workforce through having a consistent training mechanism and methodology. When I start seeing these classes offered in high schools and it's a curriculum they can pick, then I'll I'll be a little more encouraged. And I think we are going in that direction. It's just going to take some more time. It's really because we're, like I said, we're fighting this fight on multiple fronts. That's Frank Downs. He's the director of cybersecurity practices at ISACA. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire 
and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.